before we do get into the word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, just you're so gracious, so faithful, so willing to give. And it's by your abundant mercy that you gave your son, Lord. So that way we can be redeemed back to you. And because it's our sinful nature to seek the things of the world rather than seeking you first. But we come to you humbly begging as the ground is level at the foot of the cross, Lord, and just knowing what you accomplished on that cross, our eternity, our salvation, and it was for purpose. It was the purpose at the beginning of eternity, Lord. And we just come to you, let you be the teacher, not of me. Just fill me with your spirit and give me the words to speak as our ears to hear, Lord. And it's not by chance, but by your divine appointment that we're all here today, even in the rain that we so desperately needed, Lord. But we just pray for everyone that is on their way, those at home, safe travels, and everyone that is traveling for the celebration of your birth, Lord, that they just make it to where they're going safely. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter. This is one of my favorite apostles because I can relate to Peter so much. I like to call him uh, stubborn Simon to becoming profound Peter because the work that the Lord did in him is so profound. He was just a fisherman to now becoming the apostle that was able to transform lives because his own life was transformed. And so before we get into the word, just a little quick introduction on 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is designed to explain Christianity more fully to these new believers. It's for the Jews that had converted as well as the Gentiles that were scattered among the, the Roman Empire as well as the surrounding areas. And it's meant to prepare them for the suffering that was going to happen. Because as we all know, persecution is a main thing. Jesus told it that we're going to be persecuted for his namesake. So Peter's here warning them that, especially during this time, as Emperor Nero was in charge of Rome, persecution was coming. Suffering was going to happen. Christians were going to be killed. And Peter said, but there's hope. We have the living hope. Our eternal hope is in heaven because of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. That's what we need to do, church. We need to be hopeful. No matter what we're going through, no matter what trial that we're facing, we can be hopeful for we know hope. We know Christ. There's an ancient Roman saying is, where there's life, there's hope. So when life ends, there's no more hope. But we Christians know that there's something more. Where there's Christ, there's hope. Because there's eternity. We have salvation for our souls. And that's what Peter's going to relay here. And it's imminent, and it's a central theme in his entire book, or his first epistle, is being hopeful. Suffering's coming, but we have hope. We have hope in Christ. But how do we be hopeful in such a lost and dying generation, you, you might ask? It's easy. Because we believe in the living hope. Our faith and our hope are in God not in man and not of this world. So if you turn to your outline, I've titled the message, The Living Hope, Eternal Hope and Suffering. And I like to take this from Pastor Dave, no suffering is wasted. Everything that we're going through is for preparation for something to come. It's 
It's going to be for your testimony to come, to preach to somebody else, to witness to somebody else, to help them see Christ in your life so their lives can be transformed as well. So no matter what you're going through, there's going to be nothing wasted in that time. So the first key point, the writer, to whom and the why. Peter was transformed. He even had his name changed. He was a fisherman to becoming the rock, the rock in which the church was to become. His old life to becoming a new creation. He was Simon, which was his old life to becoming the rock, the new creation in Christ. And this is not our home church. We have a heavenly home, a heavenly perspective, and that's what we should be focusing on. Continue to focus on the Lord because we are his elect. He's elected us into his inheritance. He's the king, and we get to share in that. And last, the first, last part of the first key point is grace and peace to you. We can't have peace without first receiving grace, and that grace is given to us by the Father. So, church, it's always a nice, wonderful way to start a message of understanding that we do have this grace and it's freely given. We must first individually receive it though. And then we can rest in the peace that is God. The second key point is we share in his glory. Isn't that amazing? We share in God's glory. Why? Because we're his children and he's a king. He's the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings, the host of hosts. He's it all. And we get to share in his glory in heaven. We're justified when we come to know Christ. During that time, he's going to be sanctifying our lives until we're glorified with him. He tells us we receive glory in heaven. We get glorified bodies. So our immediate response should be to praise him. As Peter does, he's going to say, blessed the Lord. Blessed. How joyous is that? Because it's not of our works. It's of his mercy. And the world receives their glory now. And unfortunately, their suffering is going to be later, which is in eternity. They get eternal suffering where we get eternal glory, church. And we should be burdened for every unbeliever on, this, on that side of hell as we are for the people that we want to see saved. Third, we are being prepared. Trials are meant to prepare us. And the Lord tells us that. He says we're going to come across persecution. There's going to be trials in our lives, but it's meant for something greater. How do we know? because we get to enjoy the living home in the midst of those trials. He's there with us. He was there in the fire with the three boys. He's gonna be there to walk us through. And lastly, the truth of salvation, the return of Christ. Trials are inevitable on this side of glory, but there is hope, the eternal hope, which is Christ. Let us dig in. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Peter, the same fisherman who's uneducated, how profound are these words that he's writing? understanding that Jesus had changed his life. So why is Peter writing this? Peter wrote this epistle and he addressed it to these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, these converts to Christianity in the region of Asia Minor, which is also known as present-day Turkey. It's written after the writings of Paul, so it's probably around AD 63. But why is he writing it? It's because suffering's coming. 
there's an evil emperor about to persecute these Christians. And that just breaks my heart, knowing that these new believers, knowing that they're trusting in the Lord, they're going to come under scrutiny, persecution, and even death. But they have hope because Christ died on the cross for them as he did for us. So that's what Peter's writing about. The suffering was coming no matter what, but church in the end, heaven is better. And we need to be focused on that. Some question if Peter actually even wrote this, but I like to quote Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. But it continues on. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. They realized that they, those two men, were with Jesus. Showing us that time spent with Jesus transforms our lives. Transformed Peter's life to be able to write to us, to educate us on why Jesus is so important. He's important because he gives us new life. He gave me new life. And that's why I'm able to be here today to be able to share this with you. He gave me new life a marriage on the fritz, all of these things, all of the things. But the Lord changed it, made me turn around and say, I welcome you back. And that's what Peter happened to Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. And that's what he's telling this, the new believers. It says, Christ will accept you no matter the circumstance. I denied him, but church, it's the sprinkling of him, his blood that saves not because of me or my works. So the more time spent with him transforms our lives. Reading his word changes everything. The more time spent with him, the more intimate understanding we get of him. And we must never underestimate the training that Peter had gotten for those three years with the Lord. We nor, nor should we minimize the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. The Holy Spirit came over him, changed his life, and he saved over 3,000 people by preaching the word. And that's all documented in the Acts of the Apostles. But also, he was called Simon. And sometimes, Simon Peter, showcasing there's always a struggle between the two of his life. But nearly 50 times in the New Testament, he is called Simon, and often called Simon Peter, because there's two Christian natures, us wanting to go back to our old lives, which was comfortable and unassuming, to now having to be standing firm in the faith. But Peter was so profound because he knew that this new life was going to give him victory because he found victory in Christ. And Peter's name means the rock. Peter was just an average human until Christ got a hold of him. He was just a human clay, if we want to say. But then Jesus made a rock out of him. How profound. It's amazing Everything the Lord can do in our lives, he can take us from a jumbled mess, a piece of clay, to thus creating this firm foundation, this rock in which we can hold true. But also in Peter's typical fashion, Paul typically writes in his apostle by the will of God or by the grace of God, I'm an apostle. Peter's standing firm, I'm an apostle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything else. He's confident, humbly confident, but confident saying, this is who I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and I have authority to share what I'm gonna about to preach to you guys. So from stubborn Simon to profound 
Peter. But who's he writing to? Who are these pilgrims? The word pilgrim is someone who lives as a temporary resident in a foreign land. Very similar to who we are today. Us Christians, we are pilgrims on earth because this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And we should always have constant awareness of our true home. We should always be focused on eternity. The the King James Version, it writes, strangers instead of pilgrims. I like that a little bit better for the fact that we're supposed to be strange in the world. We're not supposed to be about the things of this world. We're supposed to be, think, and act differently than the world. We are to be strange because we have standards and values different from those around us. We actually have standards and values. The world is going sideways quick, but we are to be that light in the world because it's darkness all around. But these pilgrims, they were scattered, scattered across five different regions within Rome. And and the important thing is they were suffering. They were being persecuted, but why? Because their lives had been changed. They were living good and morally opposed to the evil around them. Roman and Jewish persecution for their new lives. They were suffering because they were living godly lives and doing what was good and right. The world wants to do what's good for the world, not for what's good for God. God wants to do what's good for us. Put that in perspective. It's always a different agenda, a different motive for the world, whereas we, as Christians, should be doing everything we can to glorify God because he's keeping us for that glory. So Peter's writing this message to the believers because they needed to know how important it is to remain loyal and submissive to the Lord. Because Peter learned the hard way when he denied, but the Lord redeemed. He gave him the opportunity for redemption as he gives us all the opportunity for redemption. We live sinful lives. How many of you guys sin today? If your hand's not up, you're lying and you just sin right now. So the Lord's just reminding us that, that no matter how far gone we are, it's only one step back to him. So it's our eternal hope that ultimately puts present suffering into perspective. No matter what trial we're going through, no matter what suffering we're facing, it doesn't matter. Heaven matters. I want to be in heaven. How about you? Peter uses the word elect. Election is not election at all if it's only a cause and effect arrangement basing God's choice on ours. God already knows. He knows the beginning from the end because he is the beginning and the end. He was time before time. He was here before the earth. He created everything. Put that in perspective. It didn't just happen with a big bang. No, God fashioned everything in this world. He knows our thoughts before our thoughts. We are his elect because he knew we are going to be elected to him. But how are we elect? Because the sanctification of the Spirit. Because we have obedience in following Christ. Because there is no matter in the circumstance that we're in. We choose to follow Christ. Thus we're elect and chosen by God. But there is a key point. There is obedience to be followed. We must 
being obedient in our daily lives. Our life must show transformation. But how is it transformed? It's transformed by the Spirit in our lives because we showcase the fruits of the Spirit in our daily walk. Since we all do fall short, though, we all do. That's why Jesus needed to come here on this earth to redeem us back to God, to be that saving grace. Peter reminds us, since we do fall short of perfect sanctification and obedience, Jesus cleanses us by the sprinkling of his blood when we accept him as Lord. We do need to accept him as Lord, as our, Lord of our lives. He must be the one in charge, guiding our steps. Without that, we will lose. As my testimony shows, I have lost, but I was redeemed back to the Lord, and that's the only reason I'm standing here today. But there are three circumstances in the Old Testament, and this is why the Bible rocks. Everything points to Christ. So the first one was the establishment of Sinai. It was the Old Covenant. This is when Moses sprinkled the blood of the people for their obedience to follow the Lord. That was the Old Covenant, the sprinkling of bulls and goats. The second was the ordination of Aaron and his sons become high priests. The blood sprinkled and the anointing oil were sprinkled on them. Aaron and his sons to become high priests. And then the third one was at the purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. The blood was sprinkled on the leper seven times to be cleansed. Completion, cleansed of all sin and corruption. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. The sprinkling of Jesus' blood accomplishes the same things. With the, first, with the sprinkling of it, first, the covenant is formed. The new covenant, covenant of everlasting life. Second, we are ordained as priests to him, being able to come to him whenever we need because the veil has been torn. Church, that is amazing. We can get to come to him at any time, any way, any, whatever we're going through. The veil has been torn. We are priests. We get to share anything that we're concerned about. And then lastly, we're cleansed from sin and corruption. Why? Because Jesus overcame sin and death. That doesn't get you pumped up for Jesus. I don't know what will. But Jesus' blood did need to be shed so that way we could have the remission of our sins. And then lastly, Peter closes out the introduction with the salutation of grace and peace. Grace is being the free favor of God. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, were burdened, I'll give you rest. And that rest is what? Peace. And we get to rest in his peace because he's in control. But you first need to receive his grace, his pardon, his mercy, saying, come to me, I'll take care of it. And then we get to rest in him like a dad comforting a child. So now that we've, we know to whom Peter was writing to and the why, let's dive into our next key point. We share in his glory. Jesus is our living hope. Verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, 
reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen, amen, and amen. First thing we should do is praise God. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Praise God. Amen. But when we consider the salvation of God, it should be an undeniable response. He's given us salvation. We don't have to worry about death. We get to go to heaven and be glorified forever because it's not of our works, but of his abundant mercy and the motive of God's work found in us. All his goodness found in us begins with mercy. It's evident in our lives being changed, transformed, making us new creations, having been saved and begotten again. You need to be born twice. You have your birth, but then you need your spiritual birth. You have your fleshly birth, need to have your spiritual birth, becoming a new creation in Christ, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, standing firm on the foundation of Christ. But how is this accomplished? The living hope of Christ. It's all made possible by the Son of God who arose from the dead. Jesus is alive, church. And that should never be minimized. He arose from the dead. That way we don't have to worry about death. He was in, he was dead for three days. But I like to think he was getting everyone out of paradise to share in the glory that we get to observe when we go to heaven. They got to be resurrected with him and be in their glorified states. But it's a living hope. Jesus is alive. How do we know it's a living hope? Because it's, have, it's one that has life in it, and therefore it gives life to us. There's a saying that, they, that Father Time is undefeated. But I like to say, Jesus conquered that. Father Time does have one loss, Christ. Because Christ is above time. So, but time does destroy most hopes for the world because these hopes fade and die away. But as a Christian, the passing of time only makes our hope much more glorious because heaven is better. And that's why Peter's writing to these new believers, understanding that Emperor Nero was going to come and destroy Christians. There was a big fire that occurred in AD 64. It was a fire on the Circus Maximus. It destroyed 71% of Rome. 10 of the 14 districts were destroyed. And he blamed it on the Christians. There are rumors to say that he was the one that sent people to go light it on fire because he didn't want to see the city thriving. And he wanted a scapegoat. Christians, good morally valued people to take the hit. I don't know about you, but the church was deemed non-essential. That sounds pretty much like persecution to me. But church, Peter's writing to this to us today. 
Persecution is coming. We are going to be persecuted. We are going to experience suffering. But the good news, Jesus overcame. And that's what we can rest in. And this should be the encouragement for all of us today. We are his elect due to our sanctification and our obedience to the Father. But more importantly, the living hope that is Christ, who overcame sin and death to allow for us to share in this inheritance. And this inheritance is not an earthly one. It will not fade away. How do we know? We're told it's incorruptible. Nothing can ruin it. It's undefiled, meaning it cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. It's perfect. Our inheritance is perfection. We can't achieve it on our own. But Christ achieved it for us and is freely giving it to us as long as we accept him into our lives, being Lord of our lives, allowing for us to have this inheritance in heaven. But how can we be certain, you may ask? God promises it. And God always fulfills his promise. It's a promise from God himself because we are kept by the power of God, not by our own power, but by his. The promise of eternity through the shed blood of Christ is not able to be snatched out of his hands. It's not our hands, look, guys. It's God's hands. So we don't have to worry about it. It's being kept for us. This living hope allows us to endure. It enables us to endure until the coming of Christ, until we see him face to face. It is through faith, our faith, abiding in the Lord, continuing that relationship with him in which activates the preserving power of God in our lives. We are kept for glory. This word kept is a military term, meaning shielded or guarded. And that makes me think of what? Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. The armor of God. He's given us the armor. He's shielding us already. We're girding our waist with truth. Girding our waist. Something is fit snugly around us. The truth. Christ. Christ is holding us tightly. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Our hearts are being protected by his righteousness, not our own. He is faithful to provide. We're shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Lord is guiding our steps as long as we're preparing our hearts. We're resting in him and he's in control. Taking the shield of faith. We can't quench the fiery darts of the wicked one ourselves, but the Lord can. And he gives us his protection with the shield of faith followed by the helmet of salvation. He's guiding, he's guarding our minds, church. He's allowing us to stay focused on heaven. And that's where we should always be, knowing that we get to share in his glory. Our minds are being protected by him and our thoughts should be focused on heaven. Lastly, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So he gives us all of the tools. He's giving us the manual right here. but it's not so much just to read it. We need to know it. That way we can battle the lie. So we're not kept by our own strength, but by his faithfulness. And he is going to guard us until Jesus Christ returns. We're either going to see him face to face or he's going to come back for his church. 
Those two things are true. And until then, he's going to protect us as long as he's in charge of our lives and we're not in charge of our own lives. So the world, the unsaved, they have their glory now, which is unfortunate because I wouldn't want my glory to be what's going on in the world right now. I'd rather have my suffering now because if suffering today means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing to us today. So church, we must keep our mind on all that God has planned for us and performs here for us. Because why? It's in preparation for, for what he has in store for us in heaven. We get to learn the new things in heaven. He's preparing us now on earth for these new thoughts and ideas in heaven. We can't fathom right now what, who God is, what he is, because he's everything. And to minimize that or try to f- use our finite minds would not do him justice. So this leads us to verses six through nine, the purpose of trials for those that are saved. We're being prepared, church. Verses six through nine. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen, amen, and amen. Church, we're being prepared for glory. Peter's writing it to us, filled by the Holy Spirit, because the Lord is penning this epistle for his people. He's preparing us for glory in heaven. There's a three-step process, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We are being prepared in this sanctification process to be glorified. He's preparing us for the life and service yet to come. And nobody knows all that is in store for us in heaven. But we do know that our lives today are like a school in which God trains us for our future ministry in eternity. Our trials are the lesson plan for what we're going to experience in heaven because the Lord is with us through the trials, in the midst of it all, through the suffering. And we need to rejoice in that. Peter says, greatly rejoice. We need to rejoice in the trials. Rejoice when things aren't going as planned. Things are not going as planned in my life right now as I thought they would be going. Who else can agree to that? But either way, church, we need to rejoice because God's plans are better than our own. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So he's preparing us for that life and service yet to come because we have a future ministry in heaven. It's an eternity. We get to learn from Jesus himself face to face. Yes, we have his word, 
but we also get to see him face to face, experiencing that glory face to face, being glorified ourselves. We share in that inheritance. So this explains the presence of trials in our lives. It's God's tools, his textbooks, and the testimony of our Christian experience. But church, there are several facts about trials. What do you think the first one is? They're not easy. Trials produce a heaviness, which means to experience grief or pain. It's the same word that was described to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Matthew 26, 37. He was sorrowful and deeply distressed. They're not easy. Jesus experienced trials. Jesus experienced trials every single day of his life, from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end. Jesus experienced the trial. We don't, Joseph's not mentioned after his birth. We don't know what happened then. He may have lost his father, his earthly father, early on. That's a trial in a kid's life. But knowing that he had a greater purpose, greater understanding, because he is wisdom and understanding, but Jesus went through trials. So, yes, church, we're going to go through trials, and it's inevitable. But the purpose of trials is getting us ready for eternity and sharing in that glory. And yes, they're not easy. So to deny that our trials are painful is to make them even worse. We must accept that there are difficult experiences in life and not put on a brave front just to appear more spiritual. We don't have to be macho about our trials, especially us men. I, as a man, very much like Peter, Actually, we'll go back to stubborn Simon. I hole up. I don't let people know because I don't want my burden to be put on others. But what does Jesus teach us about that? He brought Peter, James, and John with him to go pray. And he says, stay here and watch with me. Jesus brought counterparts. We need to be confident enough that we have Christian brothers and sisters who will be there to stay and watch because trials are not easy. And it pains me to see people like myself not be willing to get the help that they need during those trials. But it's worth it. It's worth it to share what's going on in your life coming to the Lord and having him guide you because there's going to be someone there for a warm embrace to be the arms of the Lord. There's going to be someone there to cry with you. It's inevitable because Jesus felt the same. He had all of the burdens of our life as well as his own thrust upon him. But what does he say? Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Our trials need to be guided by the Lord. And these are trials. These aren't temptations. Trials are testing of our faith. And we need to understand that. These are very different than temptations. The Lord doesn't tempt us. The enemy does. And the best way the enemy tempts us is by falsifying the word of God. Nothing he does is ever 
his own thoughts. He always copies the Lord. He's a great imitator, but he's not a great creator because our great creator is still on the throne. Secondly, our trials, they meet needs. They meet needs in our lives because the phrase, if need be, indicates that there are special times when God knows that we need to go through a trial. Sometimes it's to stop us from sinning. Oh, but then the consequences come. Yes, the consequences of your sin remain, but your sin has been forgiven. So the trial comes and you're found out, but the Lord redeems you because it's disciplining us to not falter again. So most of the time it disciplines, disciplines us when we have disobeyed God's will. But we may not always know the need being met. We can trust that God's there with us because it's his strength, not our own, that's going to get us through as long as we're seeking him. That's the key here, church. We need to seek the Lord because we have not yet seen the Lord. Peter saw the Lord, so he knew and understood that everyone after, they're not going to have seen the Lord. And I'm sure he, this is my opinion, Brett's opinion, Peter was in awe of these new believers, the faith that they had. Having not yet seen the Lord, believing and trusting in him so much that, they were going to, that the Lord was going to help them through. Because Simon denied him. But Peter was redeemed by him. So we, church, we can trust God to know and to do what is best. He's in charge. He's in charge of the thermostat. He knows how hot to turn it, how cold to turn it down. But the thing is, he's in charge. Thirdly, trials are varied. Just because we've overcome one trial doesn't mean we're going to overcome them all. They're going to be different. They're varied and God matches these trials with our strengths and needs. Yes, we have certain strengths that we can overcome. I will not eat vegetables. My wife gets on me all about this all the time, so you can't threaten me with vegetables. But candied bacon is a whole different story. <laughs> so he gives us the, str the, the strength to persevere, to endure, but not every trial is going to be the same. How do we know? Because Jesus, in all of his healing, never healed the same. He healed the blind different every time, removing scales, putting his hands on people. Nothing was the same. So we should never expect our trials to be the same. And lastly, our trials, they're controlled by God. God's in control. He holds the universe in the span of his hands. He's in control of everything. He knows our thoughts. He knows the number of hairs on our head. Some of us in the room have less than the others, so it's easier for them to know, myself included. So, But he knows. And the best part is they're for a season. They're not going to endure forever. Trials, there's always three elements of a trial. You're either in one, just got out of one, or about to get in one. So understand that no matter what, they're coming or they're here. 
So buckle up. But put on the armor of God and he'll guard you through the rest of the way. So when God allows his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. But more important, he's there with you in the fire. Just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. There was a fourth in the fire. God's going to be with you through it all. They do not last forever, and they're controlled by him. But sometimes he has to reset the clock. All right, you didn't learn. Let's go back. Because why? We need to submit. We need to submit our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, our actions to him. Because then he's not going to let us per- allow us to permit to suffer any time longer. He knows the time. He knows what, how much we can take. So church, suffering is but for a little while. So let us persevere in him. We need to learn from the lesson, the trial that he wants to teach us because in the end, it's going to bring him glory and we get to share in that glory, being prepared for it. And we get the illustration of a goldsmith. Does everyone understand what a goldsmith is? It is a person who takes ore and puts it in this, it's about 7,000 degrees furnace and just lets it sit there until all the impurities have been drawn out, all the dross. And typically, they would keep that metal in the furnace until they can see their face reflected in it, showing beauty, the glory of the metal object. So the Lord is keeping us in the furnace for as long as it takes to shine his light, his glory upon us. It's amazing. Our God is doing whatever he can to make our lives better by giving us his strength, his will, his steps, his guidance every, along the way. The important thing is that this glory is not fully revealed until Jesus returns for his church. And our trying experiences today are preparing us for glory tomorrow. This is an encouragement, church, that we're born for glory, we're kept for glory, and being prepared for glory, all because of the eternal hope of heaven leading to no suffering, being wasted. And then Peter continues on. He's giving us four directives for enjoying this living hope now. How do we enjoy this living hope, this living glory of Christ? How do we enjoy it? First, love Christ, because he first loved us. He loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. Even if it was only one to be saved, he would have gladly accepted to do it. He went to the cross for me. And that is something to rejoice about. Everyone in this room he went to the cross for. Everyone in the world he went to the cross for. Because in the Bible it says everyone. And we're his elect by the foreknowledge of our God. He already knew. But it's our choice. It's our free will to accept that offering. That offering of free grace. You say grace is, salvation is offered to the general, but it must be accepted individually. But how do we do that? How do we accept it? 
We've got to love Christ. Satan wants to use life's trials to bring us down, to bring the worst out of us. But God wants to use those trials to bring the best out of us, showcasing our great strengths by his strength. So if we love ourselves more than we love Christ, we're doomed to fail. So then we're not going to experience any of this glory now. That fire that we're in, it's going to burn us and not purify us. It's not going to take all that dross out of us. It's going to keep us until we burn. Secondly, we must trust Christ. We must live by faith and not by sight. And that's why I think Peter was so astonished by these new believers that they're living by faith, not by sight. That's why he gives it to them. He says, rejoice in this. There's four directives. Trust Christ. You're living by faith because you have not seen, but you're going to see in glory. So be hopeful for that. So faith means surrendering. It's a hard one. Surrendering, giving everything that you have to God. Your life, no longer yours. But it's worth it. Eternal hope in heaven is worth it. Knowing that you don't have to do this life alone is worth it. Why? Because God loves you. He trusts you to do what is right. He gives us the blueprint. So we must obey his word in spite of the circumstances or the consequences that come. No matter what the world does to us, we must stand firm no matter the circumstance or consequence the world is going to put on us. That doesn't matter. I have the fear of God. I fear God more than I fear man. And that should be our outlook. We must trust Christ, knowing he's going to get us through. And love and faith, they go hand in hand. If you love someone, you trust them. You can't have trust without having love. I love my wife and I trust her more than anything in this world outside of Jesus. She's stuck by my side through thick and thin and I trust to know that she's going to help me through any circumstance that I'm going through. But I trust God more. Sometimes she tells me, how are you staying so calm in what's going on in our life right now? I go, I have peace in the Lord. She goes, you're irritating. But the word of God is irritating sometimes. It's supposed to convict us. It's supposed to give us that I uh, should probably read, read about you more, Lord. Yeah, I should probably trust in you more, Lord. And that's the joy, the inexplicable joy of having that faith and that love for Christ because we trust him. Faith and love, they strengthen our hope. For where you find faith and love, you will find confidence for the future. And that's what hope is, church. We have confidence in our future. Our future is not the world. Our future is heaven. The world is dying. We can see it right before our eyes. It is going south. And typically south is not a good direction because we want to be looking north. We want to be looking up. Our eyes should never be taken off of heaven. 
Because that's where true glory is. Thirdly, we need to rejoice in Christ. We may, we may not be able to rejoice over our circumstances. How many can attest to that? Sometimes your circumstances are hard to rejoice over. But we can rejoice in them by centering our hearts and minds on Jesus. Jesus, to quote the song, take the wheel. I'm rejoicing in you because I know you're going to help me get through exactly what's going on in my life right now. We need to rejoice in that by having the faith he's going to pull us through because we trust in him. Why? Because we love him. Each experience and trial helps us learn more about him. He was tempted by Satan. He was very hungry and very thirsty after 40 days and 40 nights. I can go maybe two days without food, and then I get very hangry. My wife would tell you that very much so as well. But Jesus didn't waver. He stood firm. He quoted scripture, the word of God. That's our blueprint, church. It's these experiences, these trials, Jesus already overcame them. We just need to refer back to it to say, okay, Lord, help me. What did Peter say when he was on the water? Lord, save me. I can't do this on my own. I need you. Don't let me go. That's the type of faith I want. That's the type of rejoicing I want, knowing that Christ has me in his hand, knowing he's never going to waver because he is faithful to provide. Lastly, we need to receive from Christ. Believing is receiving. It's because it's his way of meeting our needs. If we love him, trust him, rejoice in him, then we can receive from him all that we need to turn those trials into triumphs. They always say you can, turn, you can walk a million miles from God, it's only one step back. And how true it is. Because even a little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. We get to experience that now. We get to experience heaven now in our hearts because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, so we need to have that faith, believing, trusting, rejoicing, loving the Lord, knowing those trials don't matter. The suffering is for but a little while. He's already overcome it all. He's already conquered sin and death. We don't need to worry about it. So church, it's not enough for us to long for heaven. We must exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so we can experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of suffering now. We must to help us through the trials. The trials are not easy. But to get through them, trust in Christ. Because then we can get rejoicing in Christ. Because this salvation we are awaiting, the return of Christ, was part of God's great plan for us from the beginning. He knew 
Adam and Eve were going to fail. If any of us were in the garden, we would have failed. It doesn't matter who it was, we were going to fail. There was only one perfect person who left his heavenly home and came down to earth that we get to celebrate here in four days. But that same celebration should be every day because Christ should be born again in our hearts every day. Because salvation is coming. The end of our faith is the return of Christ, and this is the ultimate salvation for our souls. Christ is coming back for his church. And I await that day. My wife, my wife and I keep bringing it up, but we, we have three children. And the way the world is going, we talk about it a lot. The way the world is going, I don't want my children to experience it. And I want the church to be raptured sooner than later. I think we all are in agreement on that. But I want to see my Savior, my Creator, face to face because I don't want my children to suffer. And that's my own burden to bear. I don't want my children to suffer. And that's how the Lord feels about us. We're his children. He doesn't want to see us suffer. Sometimes it's necessary suffering. It's a trial that we need to go through to learn from. It's a lesson that he's teaching us to submit to him. So these testing and these trials are inevitable as we're on this side of glory. As long as we do not see God we serve, we must endure those trials and face them as hard as it is with faith and joy. Because he's preparing us. He's preparing us for salvation, leading us to our last point, the truth of salvation. Verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things which angels desire to look into. Church, the angels are in, have never left heaven. They're there. And they desire it more to know what salvation is. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. They desire to know what a saved soul looks like. That's why they rejoice in heaven when a sinner is saved and turns to Christ. As we all should. When someone comes to Christ, we should rejoice because we know their lives are about to be transformed and we never want to see that fire die. When I was a new believer, I had a fire in me. And now being born again, having come through the trial of my life of addiction, I have that same fire again. And it's never been put out because God is in control. And he's taught us how did he teach us? The Old Testament prophets wrote about this salvation and they studied closely what God revealed to them. God revealed the word to them. They just penned it. 
The only reason that their names are at the tops of these letterheads is because God gave them that opportunity. He could have chosen anyone. He chose those elect few because they had the faith of trusting in him, believing in him, knowing that he was going to help them no matter what trial they may face. They saw the sufferings of the Messiah, but also the glory that it would follow, but even in their finite minds could not fully understand the connection between the two. They didn't understand that the Messiah would have to suffer. He was a suffering savior first, but he's going to be a conquering king when he comes back. There were two mounts that were talked about. First was in Isaiah, Mount Calvary. And we all know Mount Calvary. This is where the Messiah suffered and died. But Jeremiah, or Zechariah, excuse me, he talked about a second mount, Mount Olivet, where the Lord's going to return in his glory. But what the Old Testament prophets didn't understand was there's a valley between the two mounts. That's what we're going through right now. That, that valley is the church age. So God told the prophets that they were ministering for a future generation. They couldn't understand that. What do you mean a future generation? Isn't our Messiah going to come and conquer? Yes, but first, I want to see every single soul saved. And I need to be the suffering savior before I can be the conquering king. Even Jesus' own disciples were not clear the need for his death on the cross. They didn't understand it. So even if the disciples weren't clear, they were with him. Certainly the Old Testament prophets could also be excused. They didn't understand as well because we can't understand God's mind. His ways are not our ways. His truths aren't our truths. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. So these Old Testament prophets, they couldn't see the valley in between, which is this present age of the church. So if these prophets searched so diligently in the truths of salvation and yet had so little to go on, how much more, church, let's take this to heart here, how much more should we be searching in this subject now that we have the complete word of God? They had the Old Testament. That's it. We have the completed work of our Lord. We need to be searching it as diligently as they were. Needless to say, the same Holy Spirit who taught these prophets and through them wrote the word of God can teach us these truths today. So as we close, we can learn these truths. How? Because Jesus told us. He told us in Luke 24, 25 through 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a delight, Lord, or church, to meet the Lord in the Old Testament law, the Psalms, the writings of the prophets. Because any time of trial that we're going through, we can open up this wonderful manuscript and find Christ. Because for us, for us Christians, it's glory all the way. The glory comes from our living hope found in Christ when we trusted him to take over our lives. We were born for glory. 
So when we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him, we experience the glory here and now. Just as Christ suffered while he was here on this earth, we should expect suffering through our trials. But in the end, we have hope for heaven because of our salvation. So instead of where there's life, there's hope. It's where there's Christ, there's hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for our suffering, Lord, as hard as it is to say. Because a little suffering now leading to glory tomorrow is a much better revelation than having our glory now, Lord. So I pray that we just rest in you, Lord, that we just come to you fully knowing that you're going to take control of our lives, knowing that no suffering is wasted because you are our living hope. We have eternal hope in this suffering because heaven is better. So go before us now as we get ready to enter back into the world, Lord. Let us be the light shining in the darkness. Go before us as we close here in worship. You deserve all the worship, the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.